Hi, it's Grace Cowan. And this is Caitlin Brewer. And this is a second helping of Frogmore Stew. Give me more. Give me more. Hey, Caitlin. How are you, Grace? We have so much to talk about today, Caitlin. The primary, the Democrats' primary. I mean, so much has happened even since then, but I, w- I want to quick recap it. Dean Phillips, he did nothing. He got almost no (laughs) votes. Marianne Williamson beat Dean Phillips. That doesn't surprise me because she ran before. So I figured her name recognition alone. And I always remember her because she's into all that hairy fairy astrology stuff. I I say that as a full-blown astrology wannabe, but I don't take her seriously as a politician, unfortunately. I want to. I want to support women, but yeah, no can do. And Dean Phillips, he's exactly what so many people are saying they want. And yet he's a perfect example of why when we're all faced with a different option, nobody takes it. No one. No one takes it. As we talked about, Biden was the presumptive winner weeks and months before the South Carolina primary even happened. I think you called this because if you remember last week, you were talking about the interview that you read with Jim Clyburn, that Biden's going to have this in the bag. There's no question he's going to win. And so thinking that it wasn't really imperative for all Democrats to go out and vote in the primary, the numbers really prove that. Although it could be, there was this whole other campaign that we talked about last week, too, of Democrats voting in the Republican primary to make sure Trump isn't on the ballot, to try to empower Nikki Haley to stay in the race. So I guess we have to wait to see how many voters actually vote in the Republican primary. I think it'll be interesting to see if there is an increase over the last Republican primary for that exact reason and whether or not the message about investing in the infrastructure of the Democratic Party for years to come resonated with people or if there's Mm -hmm. just continued fear or support of Nikki Haley as the presidential candidate for the Republican Party. The last Republican presidential primary that happened in South Carolina was in 2016, because if you recall in 2020, they didn't have one because Trump was the incumbent. And so Mm. in their last presidential primary, they had over 745,000 people vote. And that year also, the Democrats had a huge primary. They had Over 373,000 people vote in the Democrat primary. So those were huge years. And then 2020, 540,000 people voted in the Democratic primary as compared to this year, which isn't really an even Stephen because this year we have the incumbent. So typically when you have the incumbent, most parties don't even run a primary. Exactly. I hope that we can stay first in the nation because I really do think that as a state for the Democrats, we represent the party better than some of the others that have been going first in the past. Speaking of which, did you see Jamie Harrison on, I think it was Jimmy Fallon, talking about first in the nation and how history has now changed in so much as The black population here in South Carolina used to pick cotton and now they're picking the president, which I thought was really Mm. strong language. I can't be up for Jimmy Fallon, Caitlin. (laughs) (laughs) 
To be uh, fair, I did watch the clip online the next morning, but... <laughs> oh, got it. Okay. Yeah. Yes, that makes more sense. But I, I do think that 60% of our Democrat Party in South Carolina are people of color. And we are a very important state in the history of the evolution of the Black community. And I think that giving voice to our state over a predominantly white state like New Hampshire, Iowa is really, really important. I mean, I mm. think it's important everywhere, but I especially think given our history that this state has a lot of meaning. Without a doubt. Okay, so speaking of different voices, I interviewed... Will Folks this week. Are you familiar with Will Folks? I am. And it was, I have to say, it was a pretty interesting interview. I really like talking to him because he answers questions with sources and information that some of it I had never even heard that perspective. And I was kind of shocked by that because I make a point to read a variety of news sources and stories and opinion pieces. Some of it I vehemently disagree with, and I didn't really do a deep dive with him on a lot of it because it was our first time talking, and I wanted to really understand where he was coming from. And I think he's very good at explaining why he thinks the way he does. That's part of the reason that I started this is because we all get our news from such a bubble and we just get reinforced with stuff. Even when you go out of your way to try to hear other perspectives, you don't really get the sentiment or as we were talking about last week, the emotional side of the news all the time. Yeah. I think one of the things that I was struck by is he is not as salacious as his no. Uh, Fitz News yeah. is, and I was expecting him to be way more dramatic than he actually was. <laughs> and I was maybe mildly disappointed. I do not tend to agree with everything that he has to say, but I really appreciated listening to the interview and hearing his perspective. I also think, given what you and I are going to talk about today, he and Fitz News is sort of the epitome of new media and new media's role in how we absorb information, especially as it relates to politics. That's right. Again, I did sort of a very top line interview with him, but mm. I think in the future, he and I talked afterward that it would be great to have him on. Like we talked about how the judiciary system works in our mm -hmm. state. That was and fascinating, by the way. Yeah, he's super knowledgeable about it. And he definitely comes from a perspective that's different than mine. And I think that that's productive conversation. And to your point, in an interview like that, he's not the salacious headliner that he is when he's writing for his paper. However, I think there's a place for that, too. I mean, that's how we got the Murdoch story. You know, mm -hmm. like he's our New York Post. And I think it's to the point where there's no going back. I mean, for mm -hmm. those who sort of pine away for the years of the Dan Rathers and the Tom Brokaws, that's over. And I think what mm -hmm. we need to think about now is how do we deal with the juxtaposition of legacy media, new media, and how that influences our perception of politics and the world around us. As I was prepping for our talk today on just that, reading a bunch of different articles about 
media exhaustion and communication dysfunction. And I found <laughs> there is a literal WebMD page on toxic people. WebMD has identified toxic people as a type of mental health, I don't know, dysfunction, and basically goes through a whole way of how to cure yourself from toxic people. So that's how far we've come with our toxic media <laughs> and communication is that WebMD has identified it. You've rendered me speechless. I have, First of all, I have so many people I want to share this <laughs> that's information amazing. with. <laughs> I just, I can't my believe what job is I'm, done. Yes, I have so many questions. I'm going to spend my afternoon looking up uh, WebMD's toxic people. Yeah. And so, again, as I was going through and researching this, one of the things that kept coming up was nuance. Mm -hmm. You used that word last week. It was your friend's newsletter. And as I got deeper and deeper into trying to understand the psyche and the nuances of the country, one thing really stuck out and it was this evolution of the blue collar and middle class white family. And this is, I think, where our communication became toxic. If you think about it, prior to the 1970s, the blue collar, the middle class white family were revered. And that message was evident in the TV shows, the music, and basically the general identity of the country. Pop culture was reflected and reinforced in what we see around us. And prior to the 1970s, that feeling of we are working class country, we are hardworking, we're mostly middle class people, it really idealized portraits of the working man. And then that all changed in the 70s. Think about like all in the family, how mm -hmm. it showed Archie Bunker as like a racist and a sexist and this ignorant man. And his protagonist was his college-educated son-in-law who used big words and kind of talked down to him. What the hell are them peaceniks want anyhow? Well, I think they just don't like the idea of America fighting an illegal and immoral war. Well, if they don't like it, they can lump it. <laughs> Take it down the road and dump it. Well, well, what would our leaving solve? I mean, with or without protesters, this country would still have the same problems. What problems? Well, it's the war, the racial problem, the economic problem, the pollution oh, problem. Oh, come on, if you want a nitpick. <laughs> nitpick? Let me tell you something, Mr. Bunker. No, let me tell you something, Mr. Stivic. You are a meathead. <laughs> And meathead, dead from the neck up. Meathead. Oh, yeah, now I see what your idea of a free country is. You're free to say anything you want, but if, but if anyone disagrees with you, they're either thrown into jail or called a meathead, right? That's right, because this is America land that I love. Then came Married with Children and Homer Simpson and Roseanne Barr. And all of those shows reflected not only a different perception of who we looked at ourselves as being a very white middle-class country, but everyone started speaking differently to each other too. Homer Simpson used language that maybe reflected how people talked, but also sort of drove how people talk. And Roseanne and Married with Children. And so then that created this huge shift of how the country viewed this entire group of working people. And at the same time, 
black and brown people, LGBTQ community, and all of the other marginalized groups started to see movement and attention. And that too was reflected in television. And all of that created this like class anger and resentment and the language that was okay to use as reflected in television became how we communicate. I think the transition also started to change in terms of, I keep saying these words, new media versus legacy media in the 80s as well. When you start to have talk radio and the way talk shows were used by politicians started to change in the 80s. What I mean basically by legacy versus new media is new media developed during the internet age. So we're talking blogs, clips, websites, digital apps, and it can relay information directly to individuals without the intervention of what legacy media has, which is that editorial or an institutional gatekeeper, right? They're intrinsic to legacy forms. And the gatekeepers were typically white men and mm -hmm. maybe middle class men. And so the stories you're receiving on television, the newspaper articles you're reading centered around the white male middle class experience. So of course, they're going to write about the realities of what the middle class experience mm -hmm. was. With the dawn of new media, the public is now providing information. And we're seeing things faster than we can analyze, right? So people are posting on these sites or talking about what's happened within hours of something actually happening. You're having an emotional reaction. You are right. experiencing trauma and you're experiencing emotion. And we have pushed ourselves into a place where we're forced to comment on it immediately. And we haven't processed out of the emotion and into the analytical phase an interpretation of what's happening. All of those things that were created in the 70s of these really new ways of being acceptable to speak to each other and who we revere versus who we used to revere, those new media outlets have given platforms <laughs> for that language to be pushed out everywhere mm -hmm. and without a face to it too, because no one knows who you are. You can have a fake name. You can put it out without ever having it being checked or qualified, which is what old media also used to do. Well, yeah. I mean, legacy media traditionally served many purposes in a democratic society. First and foremost, as we all know, they're there to inform the public and provide information that allows you to make informed decisions. They are supposed to act as watchdogs for checking the government's actions. That's why we are so critical about state-run media in other countries. They are there to help set the agenda for public discussion. And finally, I'm not necessarily sure that the media, in my opinion, has ever really lived up to this standard, but really to facilitate community by finding common causes, identifying civic groups, and potentially leading to the proliferation of research, which helps solve societal problems. That information is supposed to keep citizens of a democracy informed in order to be able to make decisions 
with and for legislation and electing officials. And when we absorb information sort of back to what you were saying, are we actually absorbing it or are we just reacting to it? And because there is so much thrown at us right now, it's like a constant trauma state. Even my husband this morning was like, I don't know if I can keep reading the news. <laughs> and, <laughs> and I was so surprised because he usually doesn't ever comment on the news. So that was a really unusual thing for him to say. But for some reason, something he read this morning really got to him. We know the air is unfit to breathe and our food is unfit to eat. We sit watching our TVs while some local newscaster tells us that today we had 15 homicides and 63 violent crimes, as if that's the way it's supposed to be. We know things are bad, worse than bad. They're crazy. I don't know what to do about the depression and the inflation and the Russians and the crime in the street. All I know is that first, you've got to get mad. You've got to say, I'm a human being. My life has value. It's overwhelming. But I also think that one of the things that has created this unstable feeling of communication right now is how people are trying to change the meaning of words. It's almost like, and I hate to use this word because it's so overused, but it's like a constant gaslighting over and over and over. You can go back to this new form of originalism that came out of judicial theory, which is we've been interpreting the Constitution wrong this whole time. Now we need to just interpret it in its original intent, right? It's this constant pretzel logic of politicians and pundits trying to not say what everyone knows they want to say, like they're trying to convince us, but they're not really all that convincing. I completely agree. And I think what you were just describing goes back to where we were talking about the salaciousness of uh, Fitz News and how that feeds something in us. And really what the dawn of new media has done is put infotainment in front of us every single day. And so if it doesn't feel exciting or titillating or whatever words you want to use, we don't tend to pay attention to it because we are so overwhelmed by how much information we're given every day. It's impossible. And people are like, oh, well, I do my own research and this and that. There is absolutely no possible way that you can research and verify <laughs> every single fact you hear every day. It's not possible. Right. Right. And so your discernment over time as to what ends up being fake news or real news or a combination of the two, I mean, we're exhausted. Like your husband said, he's exhausted. He just can't do yeah. it anymore. And I get it. There have been many days where I relate to that. And that's what turns people off to politics. It's what makes mm -hmm. people skeptical because we all know now that you can go find any type of statistic that will support what you are trying to prove. And you can create doubt by just asking a question. Tucker Carlson is a perfect example of that by, oh, I'm just asking questions. And ironically enough, Tucker Carlson, who loves to claim that he's a journalist, fought in court and won by saying he's actually not a journalist. He's an entertainment show. And so he shouldn't be held to the standards of journalism. And so that's where I think this has all taken a really bad left turn is legacy media trying to compete with new media 
by having pundits on all the time. And people like Tucker Carlson or really any of them where they're just trying to make a buck by selling commercials. And the way that they have to do that is to create doubt. And that goes back to your quote of doubt is dangerous for democracy. And I think what sort of exacerbates this is social media. So you take a Tucker Carlson clip, which is supposed to be infotainment, and you translate it to social media into an echo chamber where it's constantly shared among individuals via an algorithm and people see it over and over and over again. And you only have to see it so many times before you start to actually believe it. And 62% of adult Americans are getting their news from social media. Again, I am raising my hand. I get some of my news from social media. Do I have time every day to go and read about everything I see on social media? Of course I don't. This is where we're at. We are in a post-truth era. The irony is not lost on me that here we are in infotainment podcast using statistics to prove our points. Yes, totally. Well, I hope anyway that what we can do is inform without using statistics to prove one direction or the other, is to use a broad range of real information to let everyone decide what they feel on those topics. I will say, if you're interested in learning a lot more about this from people who have done much more research than myself. A lot of what I'm talking about today is covered in an article from a book called The Age of Perplexity, Rethinking the World We Knew. And mm. specifically from this chapter, the new media's role in politics, it's, it's super informative. But I think basically what this article talks about is things started in the 80s, really got more and more intense as the years have gone on. And now 40 years later, the gap between Democrats and Republicans on core political values, and that could be anything from safety nets to national security taxes, whatever, mm-hmm. is has grown to epic proportions in that two thirds of Americans fall solidly into a liberal or conservative camp. So we used to be a country, think I think, full of moderates, at least we thought mm-hmm. we were. And because of everything that's happened online, we are now not. And so I think part of the reason you and I are inspired to have these conversations is how do we get back to that place where the majority of Americans are moderates? And I think that comes back to humanity and our values as humans. I also think that this election might be the impetus to push that. You know what I mean? This election might be the one that people are like, I'm just exhausted from this. And I am not this one thing or the other. I'm not a a far right Republican. I'm not a far left Democrat. I'm in the middle and I have my views, but they don't all fit just perfectly into one side or the other. I just went to vote on policy, not on party. And hopefully this is the peak of all of this political nonsense where people are so dug into their sides, or at least their what they think is their identity with the sides, that they're now realizing that this particular party does not represent all of who I am. I think fundamentally I agree with you, and that's certainly where I stand. And then I think about what causes people to sit on these extreme sides, right? And I think really it comes down to fear and thus individual safety. 
Mm-hmm. And I don't think that we're in a time that is any different than any other in terms of people wanting to feel safe. I mean, I think even as recently as the civil rights movement, there were many people who didn't feel safe and they fought very courageously for the rights that they have today. And I don't think that's any different now. What I think is different is the way that fear can be used and the intensity of a viral tweet can put people in danger. And I think, for instance, one of my personal experiences is I ran a child sexual abuse prevention nonprofit for seven years. And I've mentioned before, I am, in fact, a gay woman. And during my tenure, it became very common for the Republican Party to associate gay people with pedophilia. And first of all, it couldn't be farther from the truth that all gay people Uh are pedophiles. But secondly, it actually puts children who are being sexually abused at a higher rate of risk because you're scapegoating one portion of the population and the actual group of individuals who is most often hurting children gets away scot-free in the public Mm -hmm. narrative. And so gay people are now at a higher risk because people are angry at them for abusing children they're not abusing. Mm -hmm. The individuals who are hurting children are not going, the public narrative is wrong. And so when children come out and disclose, people don't necessarily believe them, which continues the hurt. And you have people winning political campaigns on false information because they're promising that they're going to save children from gay people. And that's an emotional reaction. It has real world consequences. To your point, the reactionary policy that then takes us a step backward from solving the problem happens every single day. For example, I just read Governor Ron DeSantis spoke yesterday in Miami Beach He backed legislation to battle homelessness by banning camping on city streets and parks. Okay, so if you want homelessness to go away, that sounds like a great idea. I don't don't want homeless people camping in streets and parks. Of course, no one does. And I don't know if you listened to the episode with Stacey Deneau of 180 Place, but she specifically addressed this. By banning camping on streets and parks, All that you're doing is then making it illegal for someone who is already in a situation that they likely can't get out of to then getting arrested. Then they go through the courts. So that actually costs taxpayers more money (laughs) and it doesn't solve the problem. To your point, he's using that bill to communicate that he's going to clean up our streets, but in fact, he's just costing more money and not using that money effectively to actually solve the problem. And I think that's part of why there are some things that we can do as contributing citizens to a functional society. When we hear policies like that or hear people use extreme language to actually settle our brain and get us through it. And one of them is to listen with purpose. What are you hearing that person actually say and dissect what they're saying? I couldn't agree more. I think if you are going to listen with purpose, that also means you need to break up with your obsession with instant information. It is okay if you aren't the first to know something. And it is impossible this day and age to expect that a breaking story 
is the full story. Most likely a breaking story is full of opinion because Mm -hmm. they're trying to fill seconds on television. There's another thing that I think is really important for all of us to do, and that's understanding where our own biases are and where our limitations of experience are. And then mm-hmm. trying to expand our understanding outside of what our life's limitations have been. And so if your bias sits staunchly in one side or another, how do you look internally, as hard as it might be? How do you look internally and say, where can I find common ground? So how do we come to a place where we can question our own biases and not stand on a moral high ground that prevents us getting to the middle? The last point that I would make on good communication is flexibility, Mm -hmm. is being able to listen to someone without immediately going back at them when you disagree. I think it's respectful to listen to someone talk out exactly what they want to tell you. And you don't always have to blow your opinion back at them. You can just let their answer sit for itself. And on a platform like this, I think that's important because everyone can then take away their thoughts from that. The point I'm trying to make is that I don't always appreciate that when one person says their opinion, another person has to immediately come back with their opposing side of the opinion. Sometimes it's better to just sit on it, listen to it, apply it to your current beliefs, and move on. I mean, listen, I moved down to the South seven years ago, and I think the journey for me here in the South has provided an opportunity for me to be a better American. I listen a lot more. I am open to differing opinions. And even though sometimes their opinions borderline on them not believing in who I am as a person, I still believe that I can find a commonality with somebody like that. And just as much as I'm learning about their way of life, they're learning about me. The version of me that I want them to know is a version that allows them to process and walk through a journey. And there is an emotional burden associated with that from Mm -hmm. marginalized populations. But again, we're not going to come to center if we are not willing to have those conversations. Okay. I mean, holy heavy day today, Caitlin. (laughs) Great God. (laughs) was not expecting us to go so deep in the heaviness. But man, I feel like I've just released a lot of my frustrations from the week. The other thing that I thought was really funny this week was there's a little bit of a hubbub about Nikki Haley's commercial where she's basically typecasting older voters because she's saying the next person to win this election is the one who retires the 80-year-old candidate. It's been on repeat on my television over and over, even like 60 Minutes, Sunday morning, Nikki Haley's commercial running. There was a clip that I I don't remember if it was on Fox News or on CNN, that older voters in South Carolina are really offended by her typecasting them and using the ages of the two candidates as something like a negative. In the next breath, they start screaming about illegals. Come on. They're mad that they're being typecast, but then they refer to an entire group of people as illegals. So again, it's back to (laughs) communication. 
we need to start using words that aren't so reactionary. What do you have on your mind this week? I don't know if you watched the Grammys on Sunday, but I did. Yes, of course I did. Tracy Chapman and Luke Combs. Oh, one hundred percent. That is what's on my mind. And it's on my mind because of what you and I have been talking about so much. There was an authenticity in the reverence in Luke Combs's eyes for Tracy Chapman. Coupled with her very genuine, happy smile. That was the Grammy moment that our country needed. The moment of a white country man with an older black woman sharing a moment An older queer Black woman. As a person that worked in the music business, you literally can't create that on purpose. That was 100% authentic and it showed. Mm -hmm. All of the other stuff felt so contrived and that was just such a genuine moment of total praise for this woman who didn't demand any of it. Exactly. Well, I think we end on that note, Tracy Chapman. After all these years, ugh, love her. My friend Caitlin, that's all this do for today. Give me more. The Second Helping Podcast is written and hosted by Grace Cowan and Caitlin Brewer. Editing and IT support provided by Eric Johnson. Produced and directed by TJ Phillips with the Podcast Solutions Network.